Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. If you don't have a Bible, um, we have some free ones over there on the, on the bookshelf, along with some free books and things like that, but I want to encourage you, grab a Bible. Um, I would love for you to look down at what we're reading, okay, so that you see it for yourself, so that you know that I'm not feeding you a bunch of, uh, of stuff that's not true, but that you also then know where it's at so that when you go home, you can look at it again and meditate on it uh, and, and soak that in. And so I want to encourage you, have a Bible in front of you and get to Genesis 42. If you do have one of our Bibles uh, from, the, from the table over there, it's on page 37. We're going to look at two chapters today, Genesis 42 and 43. They go together as one part of a, of, of, of a larger section that stretches all the way through uh, Genesis 45. Uh, and then really ultimately carries through the end of the book. But this part itself is really across these four chapters. Uh, and so we're going to break it up into two parts. This week looking at these two chapters. Next week looking at chapters 44 and, and 45. Today we're going to see this relationship between guilt and grace. We're going to go on a guilt trip of sorts. Okay? Buckle your seatbelt. But it's not going to be ours. It's going to be the brothers of Joseph. But my prayer is that as we look at how God uses guilt to lead them to grace, that we would be uh, open to what God is doing in our own hearts and lives when we feel guilty, and that we would see his grace as well. I want to pray uh, and ask the Lord for help. This is his word, and so let's pray together. Father, your word is able to give us wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would use it this morning to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work that is glorifying to our Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had the opportunity to, to pay someone back who badly wronged you and, and they got away with it and they never showed any remorse, but you could get your revenge uh, against them without them ever knowing that it was you that did it, would you take that opportunity? If you could get away with it, just like they got away with it, would you pay them back? It's exactly the kind of opportunity that Joseph had when his brother showed up in Egypt looking for food, and, and he took advantage of that opportunity, but not in the way that we might fully expect. So uh, there's, a, there's quite a bit in this story, and so let's just jump in. Genesis 42, 1 through 4. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. Something might happen to him. Now we know from last chapter the famine was so severe that everyone everywhere needed food, right? The only food was found in Egypt because Joseph had risen up as, uh, as uh, 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 Pharaoh's second-hand man and stored up an abundance of grain during the seven years of, uh, of abundance so that they had uh, a surplus and then some uh, for these seven years of famine. The only place to get food was in Egypt. And so uh, Jacob and his sons 
found themselves in need of food, right? Jacob's words, words here to his sons were quick and decisive. He, he said to him, like, hey, guys, why are you standing around? Like, don't look anywhere. There's, no, there's nowhere to look for food. Like, stop dragging your feet and get going. We got to get to Egypt. You have to get to Egypt. Go bring us back some food. But the author's words, Moses, who wrote this, his words are quick and decisive here, too. I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 1, he called them Jacob's sons. But then when we get to verse 3, he changed the reference and he called them Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers, so that we as the readers and, and his original audience would know something that Jacob and his sons have yet to find out. They're not just going to Egypt for food. What are they doing? They're going to Egypt to find their brother, right? Verse 4 sets the stage for the moral dilemma of this story. Remember that, that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son because Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife and Joseph was Rachel's firstborn son. But Jacob thought that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Why? Why would he think that? Because his brothers lied to him and said it. that was what happened because they hated Joseph. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin and since Jacob had already lost his favorite wife and, and assumed that his favorite son was dead, he was extremely protective of the only one that he had left from that side of the family, Benjamin. Jacob was afraid that something terrible would happen to Benjamin like he thought something terrible had happened to Joseph. And so he wouldn't let him make the journey to Egypt with the rest of his brothers. Now keep in mind that Benjamin was probably in his 20s by now. Still, still young, but definitely not helpless, right? And so Jacob was being overprotective of his now favorite son. The story opens up with a reminder of the devastating famine, a picture of irrational fear, and this lingering favoritism that we just haven't gotten over yet. And all these things will play a factor in the brother's encounter with Joseph. So let's keep going. Look at verse 5. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Excuse me. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph re remembered his dreams about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the weakness of the land. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of one man. We are honest. Right? We are honest. I lost my place. Where am I at? No. It's such a ridiculous statement, isn't it? End of 11, thank you. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, that's actually true though, right? We'll get to that in a minute. No, he said to them, you've come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living 
The last interaction that Joseph had with his brothers was all the way back in chapter 37, right? And we know what this was. They hated his guts because of a dream that he had. And they wanted to kill him, but they decided to throw him in a pit instead. And then they decided instead of just leaving him there and and letting him die, they'd make some money off of him and they'd sell him to some slave traders who were heading to Egypt. Now, 20 years later almost, here they were, 10 faces among a sea of thousands of people who just like a nonstop wave of people coming to Egypt to Joseph for food. And it was the, when it was their turn in line, Joseph recognized them, knew exactly who they were. Now, if you had gone roughly two decades without seeing someone who wronged you, in a terribly grievous way without showing any remorse and they suddenly showed up at your doorstep in weakness and in need and you had all the power and how would you respond to them, especially if you recognized them and they had no clue who you were? Sounds like a perfect opportunity to take out some revenge, right? These men were Joseph's own flesh and blood. They, they treated him like a, a piece of property and, and, and had no regard for his life. And now their lives were in his hands. It's no wonder he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to him, right? But hold on a second, because the text tells us that there's a different motive behind his response. Verse 9 says that Joseph remembered his dreams about them. That's a cue for us to then also remember the same dreams, right? It doesn't elaborate on the dreams. It's meant for us to recall what these were. The first dream that he had back in chapter 37, he was binding sheaves of grain alongside his brothers, and suddenly his sheave of grain stood up, and all of their sheaves of grain bowed down to him, to his sheaf. And it was that dream that drove the brothers to devise this scheme There's no way we're bowing down to this guy. He already has that coat. What more does he want, right? After all these years of hardship and waiting, Joseph had just seen that dream come true. Did you catch what it said? What did they do when they came in? They bowed down to the ground before him. Joseph was in charge of the country because he had correctly interpreted the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and even of Pharaoh himself. He understood that that God had given uh, them the dreams in order to reveal a bigger picture and, and plan. Joseph knew there was something else going on here. And so when his own dream finally came true, Joseph was reminded that there's a greater purpose in his brother's visit and that God was working it out. So why then did he treat his brothers like strangers and speak harshly to them? I don't think he was taking his anger out on them as a quest for revenge. I think it's clear that he's testing out their integrity in a quest for reconciliation. Joseph knew his brothers were capable of ruthless deception. He was on the receiving end of that. And so he concealed his true identity in order to reveal their true character. He wasn't being vindictive. He was setting up a test. We're going to see plenty of evidence in this story of his own desire to restore their relationship, but he needed to see if after all of those years that that's what they desired too. 
He already knew that they'd come down to Egypt without Benjamin. He knows them, right? He knows there's a brother missing. But he needed a way to bring it up without letting them know who he was, without blowing his own cover. And so his repeated accusations that they were spies did the trick. Now, the irony here that you all caught on to is that after they emphatically told Joseph that they were honest in verse 11, they turned around and they lied to him in verse 13. They said, there's 12 of us total. One of them's back home with dad. The other one is no longer living. But the one that was no longer living was standing right there in front of them, right? They're lying to Joseph about Joseph, and they have no clue. They have no idea that that's what they're doing. They didn't recognize it was him because it's been 20 years since they'd seen him last. And now he looked and acted like an Egyptian, not to mention the fact that he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. All the evidence of the Hebrew brother that they sold into slavery was gone. They had no clue. Joseph already knew the truth because he knew who they were, but he used what they said to get this test to see if they would treat their youngest brother the way they once treated him. Because who's the favorite now? Benjamin. Look at verse 14. Then Joseph said to them, I've spoken, you are spies. This is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one, one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother back to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Like they had a choice, right? But listen, do you see the evidence here of Joseph's compassion for them? He was originally going to imprison nine of the brothers and send one back to Canaan to get Benjamin. But he also knew, like, this is his family. They need food. Can you send one guy back with enough food to feed the family that's back there and waiting? No. Joseph had no plans to kill them. So after giving all 10 brothers a three-day taste of the imprisonment that he has endured for several years, Joseph said, I'll let nine of you go and keep one of you back. He told them that he feared God. That meant that he wasn't making idle threats here, that he, wasn't, uh, that he expected them to prove that, that they were telling the truth. It was a statement that pressed, pressed on their consciences. Jacob had sent them to Egypt because of their lack of food, and, and, and their lack of food was a matter of life and death. Now, Joseph was sending them back to Canaan because their lack of integrity is the thing that's a matter of life and death. That's the bigger issue. These men came from a family that was supposed to fear God. Imagine that. As you, as you, you have all of these, these things running through your minds, and, and the Pharaoh's right-hand man says, I fear God. And what I tell you is the truth. Here's how it's going to be. These were God's covenant people. 
They were supposed to fear him, but they betrayed their brother. They lied to their father. And they went on with their lives for almost 20 years without coming clean about what they'd done, and they were starting to feel the burden of guilt. Look at 21, verse 21. Then they said to each other, Obviously, we're being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why this trouble has come, on, uh, come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and he, and he had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and they left there. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver there at the top of his bag. He said to his brothers, my silver has returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank. Literally in the Hebrew, their hearts went out. Trembling, they turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? What has God done to us? They still had no idea that this Egyptian man with all the authority was actually their brother Joseph. Not only did he look and act like an Egyptian, but he also spoke like one and used an interpreter to keep them from realizing that he could understand them and speak their language. He covered all of his tracks. But as they spoke to one another, the brothers concluded that the trouble that they were in was the result of the trouble that they had caused and they needed to be held accountable for it. Their consciences were, were weighing heavily on them. They were being pressed. They knew that they were guilty of sinning against their brother and that they, they couldn't hide from that forever. They knew that God knew. What has God done to us, they said. The irony is that when they saw Joseph in deep distress after they threw him into the pit, they ignored his plea because they had no compassion on him at the time. But here as Joseph watches their distress and hears their cries, he's so overwhelmed with compassion for them that he has to turn away and weep because he had to ignore their plea in this moment until they went and got Benjamin and brought him back. See, he still needed to see if they had truly changed. And so he brought Simeon out and had him bound right there in front of him before their eyes. And he had their silver returned uh, to their sacks without them knowing. So that when they would open them, they would, that would be the first thing they saw. You know what they sold Joseph for? 20 pieces of silver. They probably watched him walk away bound, headed for Egypt with the Ishmaelites. In order to press on their guilty consciences further, Joseph made sure that they left Egypt and headed back, and, and really God made sure that they left Egypt and headed back to Canaan with two images that would be these stark reminders of what they had done to their brother. Notice that when the one brother opened his sack and they found the silver, none of them accused him of stealing. None of them, none of them said, well, you took it. What was their response? They trembled with fear. Their hearts sank. They went, their hearts went out from them because they saw this as 
divine retribution. What has God done to us, they said. They all thought that God was punishing them for their sin, but, but as we're watching this unfold, here's, here's what we can start to see. God, in his grace, was exposing their guilt and revealing the need for justice. An account has to be made for what they've done. But he's doing that in order to call them to repentance. That is grace. But first they had to return to Jacob and explain to him why only nine of them came back. Look at verse 29. When they reached their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that happened to them, the man who is the Lord of the country spoke harshly to us and accused us of spying on the country, but we told him we are honest and not spies. Can you hear like the, the, the plea in their voice? Dad, we promise this is what happened, Right? So they're telling him, we were 12 brothers, sons of the same father. One, one is no longer living and the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. The man who's the Lord of the country said to us, this is how I will know if you are honest. Leave one brother with me, take the food to relieve the hunger of your households and go. Bring back your youngest brother to me and I will know that you are not spies but honest men. I will then give your brother, Simeon, back to you. You can trade in the country. Now, I don't know if you notice, some of those things are a little different than what we were told already. The brothers recapped their trip to their father, but they softened some of the details. When I was a kid, I, I, I was afraid of getting in trouble. So, so I, when I had to come clean to my folks, like when they found out something and, and I had to confess what it was, I'd tell them the fewest details possible, right, so that I could try and minimize the punishment, sort of like this test of like, what do you know? Do you know all the things? Have you ever done that? Do you still do that? I'm recovering. Note the irony in verse 33. They said, the man who is the Lord of the country told us, this is how I will know if you are honest. Leave one brother with me. That's not what, exactly what Joseph said, was it? Back in verse 19, he said, let one of you be confined not just like, hey, hey, just let one of you stay with me. No, no, no. You're going to stay in jail. They didn't tell Jacob that Simeon was bound and put in prison. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't go that far. They did make sure to get the part right about bringing food back to relieve the hunger for the households, though, right? Like bolstering themselves up. They also said in verse 34 that if, if they did what Joseph told them to do, then they would, they'd be able to go back and trade in the country. But what did Joseph actually say back in verse 20? He said if they did what they told him to do, they wouldn't die. That's different. That's different. The brothers concealed some pretty important information, but as soon as they all opened their sacks, then they all saw the silver the gravity of the situation was truly revealed, and Jacob was not happy about it. Look at verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, it's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Then Reuben said to his father, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. 
Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob answered, my son will not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. Jacob's response once again pressed on the consciences of his brothers, of of the brothers, but also revealed his own sense of self-pity, driven by the favoritism that he had shown toward Joseph and Benjamin, driven by the, the irrational fear that he had, worrying that his son, something would happen to him. Jacob told his nine sons that they were making him childless. Imagine that. Imagine that. It really was their fault that Joseph Joseph was gone, although Jacob didn't know all the actual details behind that situation. But Jacob was also partly responsible for Simeon's imprisonment because Jacob kept Benjamin back when he sent the brothers to Egypt in the first place. He He was paralyzed by fear. And yet he claimed to be the victim here. He said, everything happens to me. We didn't even know what was happening with Jacob. We were in Egypt with the brothers and Joseph. And yet he's like, you guys, everything happens to me, he said in verse 36, literally in the Hebrew, everything is against me. Everything is against me. We know what Jacob is like. He's feisty, right? He's against a lot of others. And yet, he says, everything is against me. It seems as though that he has forgotten God's promises to him. Remember that promise that God made? Hey, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'll make your offspring as numerous as the sand of the sea. Jacob, I got you. I'm with you. Then Reuben, his firstborn son, pledged to protect Benjamin personally, but Jacob wasn't convinced. He'd already lost uh, several of his sons in his eyes, two of them for sure, right? He said, he said uh, Joseph is gone and, and Simeon is gone. Why would he risk losing his grandsons too? And, and by the way, the fact that Reuben was willing to put his son's lives on the line instead of his own probably didn't give Jacob any reassurance that, that he would go all the way to protect Benjamin at all costs. And the irony is that by, by his own unwillingness to send Benjamin back with them, Jacob was essentially willing to put Simeon's life on the line. He's mad at Reuben for putting his sons up as collateral while he's doing the exact same thing with his own Simeon. Think about how piercing Jacob's words in verse 38 must have been to these nine brothers. My son will not go down with you. My son will not go down with you for his brother is dead, listen, and he alone is left. Jacob may have well have said, listen, Benjamin is the only one that I really care about now. Thanks for the food. And to add insult to injury, Jacob told them, if anything happens to Benjamin, it will be the death of me and that'll be your fault too. So that was 
settled it, right? They can't go back to Egypt. They won't get food if they don't have Benjamin, and Jacob won't let them have Benjamin. But they still had a problem because the famine wasn't done. We're only like a year, a little over a year into the famine. It's seven years. Egypt was still the only place to get food. And now we're in chapter 43. Look at verse 1. Now the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man specifically warned us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, you will, you will, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. Why have you caused me so much trouble, Israel asked. Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? They answered, the man kept asking us about our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. We're honest men, right? How could we know that he would say, bring your brother here? Come on, dad. Then Judah said to his father, Israel, send the boy with me. I'll take Benjamin. Send him with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our dependents, our sons. I will be responsible for him and you can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and, and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have been back there and back twice by now. This chapter begins the same way as the last chapter, only this time Jacob didn't have the luxury of sending the brothers to Egypt without Benjamin. Jacob's main concern this whole time has been the preservation of his family, right? Why? Because God promised that they would live on. He thought the famine would kill them all. The reason he sent his sons down to Egypt for food in the first place was to use his words so that we will live and not die. Go get food. This is it for us. And while he refused to send them back to Egypt for Simeon, isn't that interesting? He's perfectly fine waiting until the food ran out while Simeon was down there in prison. But as soon as the grain ran out, he was right there. Hey, guys, we're out. Go get food. Go buy us some. Judah told him there's no point in going unless Benjamin came with him this time. The man who's the lord of the country made it clear, Dad, no Benjamin, no food. If you don't send him with us, we're not going. Jacob threw a pity party again. Blamed his sons for his misery while he overlooked his own contribution to the problem. The sons made excuses to deflect their guilt and make themselves look more innocent than they really were. Everybody's pointing fingers. Right? We've never done that, right? And then Judah stepped up. And he did the same thing that Reuben did at the end of the last chapter. He promised to protect Benjamin only instead of offering his own sons as collateral, as a guarantee, Judah said, I'll take his place. I'll bear the guilt. If I don't bring him back to you, you can hold me personally accountable, and I will be guilty forever. Both Reuben and Judah tried to, to save Joseph's life back in chapter 37. Do you remember that? 
They tried, but they, they also did it for their own personal gain. I think Reuben was trying to get back into good graces with Jacob after some, doing some very sinful things. Judah's like, hey, let's just sell him. But we saw God's transforming grace begin to work in Judah's heart when he took responsibility for sinning against Tamar in chapter 39, right? That's where we saw Judah's transformation start to happen. And now we're seeing that grace continue its work as he, as he offered to take full responsibility for the life of his brother Benjamin. This is grace moving him in a direction that is Godward. Judah used Jacob's own words to reassure him. Send the boy with me and we will be on our way. What did he say? So that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our dependents. Judah didn't offer the next generation as collateral like Reuben did. Instead, he promised to preserve it. And he told Jacob to stop dragging his feet and let him go. Dad, what are you doing staring at us, right? Just send him. We could have been there and back by now twice. Look at verse 11. And then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Sounds like Jacob, doesn't it? Put some of the best products of the land in your packs and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balsam, a little honey, aromatic gum and resin, pistachios and almonds, a lot of the same things that the slave traders were carrying as they went to Egypt. Take twice as much silver with you. Return the silver that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back at once to the man. May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, I, if I'm deprived of my sons, then I am deprived. Does that sound familiar? This scene, it's reminiscent of when Jacob was preparing to meet Esau for the first time after he had stolen Esau's birthright and blessing and then ran away from him. What did he do? Do you remember? He sent gifts ahead of him to try to appease Esau and get Esau to, to con convince Esau to spare his life. And, and, and Jacob prayed to God, asking him to protect him. And keep his promise to make Jacob's offspring as numerous as the sand of the sea. Surely as, as Moses' original audience heard this part of the story, they, they would have also made this connection back to Jacob and Esau's reunion and, and remembered God's faithfulness to keep his promises to Jacob. They would have been reminded of God's bigger plan here in this situation as they, they could see what Jacob could not. That he was sending his sons to be reunited with the brother that they had sinned against, and he was sending them with a gift and a prayer. When he sent the gift ahead of himself, uh, ahead of him in uh, reuniting with Esau, he said, perhaps, perhaps he'll let me live. And here he says, maybe the silver was a mistake. Perhaps, it, perhaps he'll let you live, Right? Maybe in the greatest irony of all of it, Jacob ended up alone in Canaan while all of his sons are in Egypt. And yet, 
we know this, what he has yet to learn and find out, what his brothers have yet to know. He had nothing to fear because God Almighty would once again keep his promise and answer Jacob's prayer. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, did I read verse 15? I didn't think so. The men took this gift, double the amount of silver and Benjamin. They immediately went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Then when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, take the men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to, see, to Joseph's house. But the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, we've been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us and seize us and make us slaves and take our donkeys. So they approached Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the doorway of the house. They said, my Lord, we really did come down here the first time only to buy food. When we came to the place where we lodged for the night, we opened our bags of grain. Each one's silver was at the top of his bag. It was the full amount of silver, and we have brought it back with us. We brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our bags. We know why Joseph's brothers were taken to his house, but they had no clue, right? All they knew was that the man who was the lord of the country had them brought there, and they were terrified I saw a, a note in a study Bible for verse 18 that said this, nothing awakens fear like a guilty conscience. Yeah. We're all shaking our heads on that one. We know that, right? These brothers were so riddled with guilt for what they had done that they were afraid that they were going to be punished for something they actually hadn't done. They didn't put the silver there. They didn't take it. And they're terrified. And their fear led them to assume the worst-case scenario. Like, listen, not even our donkeys are safe, right? Fear puts us all in disaster mode, doesn't it? When we fear something, we try to do everything that we can to control what we can for as long as we can. The brothers approached Joseph's steward at the doorway of the house because they knew that once they got inside, it was over. Any control that they might have had, it's gone once they cross that threshold. They said, look, we honestly came here for the food. We really did. Just like everybody else. And then we found the silver in our bags on the way home when it was too late for us to turn around and bring it back. So we stayed and we ate all the food. Right? But we brought it back. We brought it back. We kept it that whole time. And then we brought more back so that we could buy more food. We're honest. We didn't steal anything. Look at verse 23. Then the steward said, may you be well. The Hebrew is shalom there. Hey, be at peace. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, must have put treasure in your bags. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward brought the, the men into the house, gave them water to wash their feet, and got feed for their donkeys. 
Since the men had heard that they were going to eat a meal there, they prepared their gift for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift they had carried into the house, and they bowed to the ground before him. He asked if they were well, and he said, how is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they knelt low. They bowed, and they paid homage to him. Brothers' fears were totally unfounded. They didn't know that. Remember when they found the silver in their sacks and they asked, what has God done to us? The steward just answered the question for him. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your bags. Instead of overpowering them like they feared, the steward gave them water to wash their feet. Instead of taking their donkeys like they were afraid of, the steward got food for the animals. Instead of making them slaves like they dreaded, they were invited to a meal at Joseph's house, the number two man in all of Egypt. The brothers feared punishment, but what did they find? Grace. They gave Joseph the gift, but he didn't care. He wasn't concerned with it. Instead, he was concerned with the well-being of their father because it's his father. Now that all of his brothers were there, Joseph hasn't seen his, his dad yet. He wants to know, like, hey, there's a famine. Is he still alive? Is he doing well? Overwhelmed by his care and kindness toward them, the brothers once again bowed down to Joseph, unaware, unaware that they were fulfilling the dream that had led them to treat him so harshly in the first place. This is, this is like the best case of what goes around comes around. God used their wickedness and their their harshness toward their brother to bring them to this place of mercy. Look at verse 29. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? And then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother and he was about to weep. He went into an inner room and he wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, regaining his composure. He said, serve the meal. They served him by himself, his brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, since that is detestable to them. They were seated before him in order by age from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and they became drunk with Joseph. Joseph hadn't seen Benjamin since Benjamin was a young child. Verse 30 says that Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with the emotion for his brother. Literally in the Hebrew it says, his mercy was kindled. I love that picture. His mercy was kindled. Remember Jacob's prayer in verse 14? May God Almighty cause the man, who's the man? Joseph to be merciful toward you. Joseph's compassion wasn't just reserved for Benjamin, though. He loved all of his brothers, and he wanted to be reconciled with them. But he needed to see for himself if they had had a change of heart. When he told them back, uh, to come back with Benjamin at the, the beginning of chapter 42, he was preparing for this moment. All of that that we've gone through is, is for this moment here. 
He seated them at the table according to their birthright, firstborn to youngest, Reuben to Benjamin. Now remember, these are grown men. It's not easy to pick them out of, in, a, in a lineup and, and, and know who's firstborn and who's youngest unless you know them already. And so they were astonished when he lined them up that way. Joseph did know them, right? And instead of giving the, the biggest portion to Reuben, the firstborn, who should have gotten it, Joseph gave Benjamin, the youngest brother, the favorite brother, five times more than everybody else. Why? Because here's the question that he wanted to find out. Would the older brothers be jealous of their younger brother like they were jealous of Joseph? This is the test. Joseph was the favorite, and they dumped him. Now Benjamin's the favorite, and he just got a whole lot more food than they did. Joseph wanted to know that. We're going to have to wait till next week to find out. I mean, you could read ahead. Listen. Okay. That was for dramatic effect. You should read ahead. I hope you're reading along with these. This part of the story, though, ends kind of weird. It says, says that they drank and they became drunk with Joseph. Now, this isn't a comment that's condoning drunkenness, like, ah, everything's cool. They just partied hard, right? Instead, it's conveying the fact that the brothers' initial fears and apprehensions were gone. Their, their inhibitions are lowered. If they're going to reveal their true selves, they're not going to have any restraint when they're drunk. If they're going to be jealous of Benjamin, it's going to come out. And here's the thing. I know we've talked about Joseph as sort of this anti-type of all these other men in Genesis. They've all messed up, and Joseph is, is pictured as a man of integrity, and he is. He is. But it says he got drunk. It says they got drunk with him. Maybe he got drunk with them. If he did, it's just a reminder that he's not perfect, right? God promised the serpent crusher, and guess what? It's not Joseph. And it's none of these guys either. He may have been a man of great integrity, but he's also a man of great need. Aren't we people of great need? You see, we can't read this story without having our own integrity tested. And the reality is this. Every one of us gets jealous. Every one of us plays favorites. We all lie and make excuses to avoid punishment. We all try to blame others for the trouble that we get ourselves into. We all play dumb at times. We've, we've all given in to fear and we try to hold on to control as long as we can. Every one of us has done this in some way, shape, or form. Now, we're not all guilty of everything, but we are all guilty of something and some things Joseph's brothers weren't spies. They didn't steal the silver, but they did hate their brother. And they sold him into slavery. And God used this situation to, to press on their consciences and keep them from ignoring the truth. Listen, we're not always guilty of what others accuse us of. 
but we are always guilty of what God accuses us of. Every single time. And everyone who is guilty before God must be held accountable to God. And here's the beauty of the gospel. This is where Jesus comes in, right? The beauty of the gospel is that God himself took on flesh and he said, I will be responsible. You can hold me accountable. I will bear the guilt. Jesus Christ, God in human form, bore the guilt in our place so that we could live and not die. So that we could live and not die. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins and he kindled God's mercy by quenching his wrath. Because of his own compassion toward us, God the Father rose Jesus from the grave to show that Christ's payment was enough and to release us from the bondage of death forever. Christ lavishly gave us his own righteousness and sent his spirit to live in us and to give us both the desire and the ability to live lives of integrity and holiness that are glorifying to God, where we can be honest and mean it. When we were slaves in bondage to sin, Christ brought us into the house, sat us at the table, washed our feet, and gave us an overwhelming portion of grace and blessing. But we need to understand this. These are amazing and glorious truths, but they are only true for those who are honest about their need for the grace that only Christ can provide. For those who make no excuses for their sin, no effort to cover up their guilt, but who humbly come and bow down to the one who is the ruler of all. And seek his grace and forgiveness. If you're in deep distress because of your sin, if the burden of, of guilt is weighing you down, listen, that's a good thing. It doesn't feel like a good thing, but that's a good thing. Why? Because there's a burden lifter. Make your plea to Christ. Make your plea to Christ. He's not like the brothers. He won't ignore you. He has compassion. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept at the grave of Lazarus. Make your plea to him. He won't ignore your cries for help. Turn from your sin. Trust him. Listen, the guilt is necessary to remind us that we can't get rid of it on our own but you can leave the burden of your guilt at the cross of Jesus Christ and you can walk away 
with grace. Grace through faith in him. If Christ has removed our guilt forever through his sacrifice, though, then what are we to make of the guilt that we feel when we sin as believers? Sometimes we punish ourselves, right? God has given us everything that we need to live lives of integrity and holiness. Christ hasn't covered our sins so that we can continue in them. He's covered our sins so that we can continue in his grace, denying these things that we used to love and giving ourselves to the one who now holds our affections and our allegiance. And he's given us that grace so that we don't give up when we fail or try to cover it up ourselves. We don't have to pretend. When we sin as believers, God in his grace presses on our consciences in order to expose our sin, to direct us to the cross, and to call us every single time back to humble repentance. He reminds us that every sin must be accounted for. And then he points us to the one who has made, who was made accountable for us so that we would return to him instead of to the bondage that he's already released us from. Do you have unconfessed sin? Does it feel like there's reminders of it everywhere? Are you afraid somebody will find out? God already knows. God already knows. And he's the one that matters. God already knows. He's already redeemed you through Jesus Christ. He's not pressing on your conscience to punish you. He's disciplining you as a loving father. He's doing it to restore you. He's not like Jacob. He didn't keep his beloved son back. He willingly sent him, knowing exactly what would happen to him because he was carrying out his plan to rescue you and me and all who come to him for mercy. So return to him. Return to him. The guilt that you feel is meant to draw you back to his grace. And let me just finish by offering a warning to those who may be tempted to walk away from this passage eager to hold someone else's sin over their heads. During our prayer time, we, we read Genesis 6. We, we don't ignore other people's sin. God has called us to point that out in love and grace, gently, hum, humbly, so that we don't get caught up in it ourselves. If anybody thinks he's something, he's nothing, right? There's a time and a place to bring up sin of others. But I want us to pay careful attention to Joseph's heart here and be reminded that he was not looking for revenge. He was looking for reconciliation. He wasn't cold-hearted toward his brothers. He was full of compassion toward them. He wept over them. What they did to him was incredibly painful. It was deserving of punishment. We're not diminishing anything that anyone has done to us. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It's sinful. It's painful. We don't need to pretend that it's not. We don't need to pretend that we want justice. God is just. And we've been made in his image. What they did to Joseph was incredibly painful. It was deserving of punishment. And Joseph at any time could have paid them back without them ever knowing that it was him who did it. 
But instead of getting revenge, he entrusted them and himself to God's greater agenda. Are you willing to do the same? Do you weep with compassion over those who've wronged you, or do you want them to writhe in the guilt of it? Nobody, nobody escapes God's justice unpaid. Nobody. The only reason that we have nothing to fear is because Christ graciously made the payment already on our behalf. If God has cleansed us from our guilt when we didn't deserve it, shouldn't we want that for others? There's room at the table. God presses guilt onto our consciences in order to drive us to his grace. So when we feel that guilt, let's remember his mercy and run directly to Christ. Let's, let's rely on his grace to help us be more eager for reconciliation with others than we are for revenge. And when our integrity is tested, may we be found to be growing in dependence not on ourselves, but upon the one who took our guilt upon himself and covered us in his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, and we are thankful that it reveals Jesus to us over and over and over, that you use your word, your spirit, your church to expose those things left in us that are of the flesh, things that we have died to because we are now made alive in Christ, things that we need to, to continue to put off in the power of the Spirit. And we thank you that you are patient and you continue as a loving father to discipline your children, helping us see the reality of our sin and also helping us see the reality of the cross and the resurrection. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we have a seat at the table. May we be people who live in that grace and magnify it to others.